Welcome back to Tree Lady Talks. Last season, this happened. Oh, Julian Forbes led! Now that's Julian Forbes led, and he did two very popular episodes indeed. Uh, season 2, episode 7, and season 2, episode 18. Just another thing, and a case update. And at the end of that, we gave people the right to reply. And stand back in amazement, somebody actually did. So Sharon, who is this mystery person? So welcome to John Hugh. John, thank you so much for joining us on Tree Lady Talks. John, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Uh, well, I'm coming to the end of the first part of my career, at least. Um, I've been practicing in forestry and arboriculture for um, approaching 40 years. And since 2012, I've been a full-time arboricultural consultant. But before that, first experience of legal matters, uh, the European Union employed me to be a law enforcement officer, or expert even, in Indonesia, and said, go and spend 25 million euros. Ah. And uh, the Indonesian government wanted motorboats and machine guns. And it led to me chasing poachers in the highlands of Kenya and finding strange amphibious vehicles in the Peruvian Amazonian forest as they looked for barons growing coca. Very exciting. That sounds but, amazing. I thought my time <laughs> was exciting trotting up and down Caledonian Road in Islington, but that is really out there. How wonderful. I can tell you it's a lot rougher on Caledonian Road. But uh, <laughs> anyway, TPO, TPO um, prosecutions and, and, and the like are a little bit... Um, more mundane, but at the same time, can provide a little bit of adrenaline at, at times. But uh, yeah, so that's that. That's me. I've I've got to know the TPO system fairly well, and having a forestry background, I've got an understanding of what uh, forestry is all about. And for the last few years, I've been maintaining the uh, RICS website on uh, tree preservation orders and high hedges. And uh, a component of that has involved looking at felling licenses and the interaction of the, uh, of the two. Well, John, thank you so much. They are both still online. So all of our podcasts are still online. Um, but we released this one recently because Julian had the result of the court case. And I really appreciated you phoning me a few days ago to say that you wanted to put your point of view across and we always welcome a right to reply here at Tree Lady Talks. So John, I know this is something that you're very experienced and knowledgeable about and passionate about. It's over to you. Thanks Sharon. Well, I'm in a rather fortunate position in the sense that um, in March 2020, the case that Julian describes came to me um, a couple of days before uh, uh, there was due to be a hearing at the local Crown Court. And it was intriguing because it came to me with reports or at least advice from three separate arboricultural consultants, all of whom said pretty much 
sort of similar things, but with different degrees of confidence and different degrees of rigor. But I, I was given all the paperwork and then I was told that the defendant had sacked their lawyers and that was the end of my involvement, even though what I told the barrister um, actually wasn't to their liking. Uh, but the other aspect to this was that as an assessor for the ICF for new prospective members in our borough culture, I'm always quite surprised at how little uh, new members know about felling license when they come with an arboricultural hat on. They have no or very little experience. <clears throat> and even when you ask them directly as to you know, how trees can be protected, the words felling license doesn't come out very often. They have to be prodded. Um, so court cases can be complex. Inevitably, there are lots of red herrings and interesting points which, um, uh, you know, are worthwhile spending time on, but may or may not um, be crucial. And in this case, there are a whole variety of issues which I won't raise uh, because we'll be here all night. And the only specific issue we need to consider is this interaction between the Forestry Act, 1967, and the Town and Country Planning Act, 1990. And the Forestry Act has been around for over 50 years. And the Town and Country Planning Act has been around for over 30 years. And these two acts, rightly or wrongly, have been uh, uh, working together um, without too many problems. So it was a little bit surprising to hear that, um, you know, this case had, um, you know, led to some new ground or done something unusual. And uh, it was quite funny to read the website of Goatley solicitors who claim, and I think Julian may have mentioned it, who were involved in the case. And it, their website reads, if you go down to the woods today, you may be in for a big surprise. It goes on. This case has created a fascinating legal matrix, which when pursued to its logical conclusion, produces an unexpected result. Quite surprising. So I picked up my two volumes of Charles Miner's Law of Trees, thinking, well, there must be something in here about this issue. Not a dicky bird. Surprising. I looked at the old blue book and saw what they had to say about the matter. And then I looked at the history of the Forestry Act um, to see whether that could give us any indication of what's gone on. And of course, in 1967, when the Forestry Act was, was first came into force, the Forestry Commission was received a copy of every single tree preservation order that was served in the country. I reckon they must have had about 100,000 tree preservation orders clogging up their offices. And as the rules changed, they got rid of all of those. They sent them off to the National Archives, and the National Archives put all but a very small number in the bin. Um, <clears throat> but from that time, if we look at the uh, 1969 tree uh, regulations and the model order. You look at a TPO that was served at that time, there's a note at the bottom 
of the model order, first page, saying, if you need uh, a felling license for protected trees, you need to apply to the Forestry Commission for a felling license. That was there up front on every single TPO that had been served correctly. But by 1999, uh, with the Town and Country Planning Act 1990 and the new model order, those words disappeared. And you have to work quite hard to um, look at 1990 and 1999 regulations to actually get a reminder that you're meant to be dealing with the Forestry Act at the same time. And I think institutional memory has probably forgotten this issue to some degree. Um, but that's probably the history, the history behind it. And um, so we now have a situation where the Forestry Commission has been reorganised and reorganised and reorganised. And when I left university, I think they had 8,000 members of staff. I don't know, or even 10,000 members of staff. I don't know how many they have now. But they're faced with uh, an act that hasn't changed. But the act says very clearly <clears throat> what to do when a uh, felling license is required for trees protected by a TPO. And it says, here we are, Forestry Act 1967. If an application is made <clears throat> for a felling license in respect of trees, da 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 da. If they propose uh, the Forestry Commission as it is, um, is shall give notice in writing to the authority that made the tree preservation order. If the onus is on the Forestry Commission to tell the local authority that there is a felling license application and does the council have anything to say in the next 28 days. That's the time period they've got. Um, and this case has a number of complexities, which I won't really go into in too much detail. Julian has made some remarks about the highways agency and the felling license. The, the only important thing to note is that there was a felling license um, and it had the standard words at the time, which said that um, uh, if you haven't told us about the TPO, this doesn't cover protected trees. And whilst that is interesting, that was standard wording for felling licenses at the time. It does appear that the Forestry Commission has, uh, from time to time, altered its documentation and its wording, uh, both of the felling licenses it issues and of the guidance it produces. And it's a little bit confusing if you try and work out uh, what is going on, because the wording I've just referred to isn't on felling licenses I've got from this the beginning of this year. But to cut to the main point, Julian has made some points, specific points about, uh, in, in this particular case, about the Forestry Act 1967. He has made the statement, if I get into the fine detail, Forestry Act 1967, section 15.5, has the effect of removing jurisdiction over the felling of trees subject to a TPO from the local authority and vesting it wholly within the regime set out in the Forestry Act 1967. 
That's partly correct, but it's misleading. It's misleading because the Forestry Act 1967 very clearly does lay out what needs to happen, but it doesn't remove uh, the jurisdiction from the local authority at all. It puts the local authority very much in the driving seat because the Forestry Commission has to consult with the local authority. And if the local authority wants to object, it gets removed from the Forestry Commission and the Town and Country Planning Act comes into force. So I don't know where Julian got that from or why he uh, has made a point of it, but it doesn't seem right to me. Um, and related to that, um, there is this issue, the wording, which says that uh, the Forestry Act disbars local authorities from even entertaining an application under a TPO. Um, the difficulty is, is that he hasn't quoted the whole clause. Section 15.5, which Julian has quoted for, and of course it does sound, um, it, it, it does sound quite interesting when it says, no relevant application shall be entertained uh, in respect of the felling of trees. And da, da, da. What he's missed out is the clause that starts that section, which reads, except as provided by the foregoing provisions of this section, as in the first part of the Forestry Act section 15 describes what should happen if a forestry license is required for protected trees. And it starts, 15.1, it says 15.1, if an application is made for which consent under the tree preservation regulations are required. It says that, it doesn't say that the Forestry Commission just make the decision, it says that the felling license is required and consent is required from the local authority under the and it's a joint process and the forestry act 1967 it had to go somewhere it's in the forestry act <clears throat> it describes what process needs to be followed for the local authority to grant permission the person has to apply for a felling license with the forestry commission and the forestry commission then has to inform the local authority of this application and ask them <clears throat> what they think about it and it's there's a two there's a twin or, or two methods one is if the forestry commission intend to uh, uh, serve a, to grant a license they will ask the local authority from there for their views and it's what's called a notification they give notice to the local authority if the forestry commission aren't at all <coughs> concerned as to whether these trees get cut down or not they will refer the application. If they refer the application, they just say, it's over to you, local authority, you do with it under the town and country planning act. If we're not going to grant a felon license. So just to interrupt you there, so the Forestry Commission is making that decision. The local authority cannot make that decision. So the local authority arrive are either notified or they're referred to. Absolutely. They don't yeah. have control. They can't say, they can say during the notification process, or oh, we object to this. Yes. Um, but, and if they're referred, 
they can't say actually we don't care either <laughs> um, take it back they then have to deal with it but in other yeah. words the forestry commission to put it really simply is a master in this situation it, it, it's a master only in that it has a choice it's not a ma it, it, it's it's not a master in terms of um, it's going to do something else it's it, it, and essentially as, as a woodland officer said, said said to me if there is a commercial crop of trees in the ground that has been planted with a view to producing timber that's the whole role of the forestry commission you know they're there to support that person to fell the trees <clears throat> that might be sweet chestnut coppice you know that might be planted plantation at regular intervals but essentially the forestry commission is there to maintain that stock of timber and if someone wants to cut it down with a view to replanting forestry they don't really want a tree, a tree preservation order to get in the way. Can I say also, remind listeners that felling licences are not just for woodlands. They protect any uh, more than five cubic metres of timber in a calendar quarter in an area that, which is not a garden, not a public open space or certain types of them, not an orchard and not a graveyard. So in other words, a inner city, not London, but an inner city it, um, industrial estate with, say, 20 poplars on it, which need to be felled, maybe they've just outgrown their situation. That requires a felling licence. And I think that's where people forget. They tend to equate felling licences with rural situations, but it does apply to all urban areas apart from inner London boroughs. And the actual felling licence application process is not as intuitive for those geographical situations. You know, if you're trying to do a compartment of scattered poplar trees on an industrial estate, for example, it's quite tricky. But I just wanted to bring in the other context where felling licenses apply. Would you agree, John? I, I, I'm glad you brought it up and I'm glad you started with the word protect because it's very, important to remember that the forestry commission felling license regime is not there to protect trees they are there to maintain the the whole reason for the forestry commission clearly the, the forestry is now a more complex piece but the whole reason forestry act 1967 uh, and in 1951 when it Felling license started after the Second World War is to maintain the stock of timber. Yes. And, and all they are doing with a felling license is regulating that flow of timber. And as I say, forestry is now more complex, but they're not there to protect trees. And if you read the Forestry Act, there is almost a presumption that a felling license will be granted to cut trees down. Clearly tree preservation order, the last thing we want is a tree to be cut down. But, so there is a clash there, and that's why relying on a felling license to protect trees is not a good idea at all. The, the, the Forestry Commission are almost obliged to grant felling licenses providing 
sustainable forestry is planned, provided, you know, environmental regulations apply, they're not going to sit there and say, oh, these trees are pretty, you can't cut them down. No, so they come from completely different angles. So, you know, the absolute foundation of the Town and Country Planning Act is in essence visual amenity and the absolute essence of the the felling license regulations 1967, which is a very good year, by the way, um, (laughs) is timber production. But I think that gets clouded in our current culture of visual amenity, ecosystem services, climate change. But they, they are the two different, they're not opposed, they can be in harmony, but they're the two different viewpoints. But I use the word protect in that. If those, let's take these tw- hypothetical 20 poplar trees in, let's say, Liverpool city centre industrial estate, for example, if those trees are felled, they do not have a tree preservation order on them, let's say, they're not in a conservation area, but they are felled. Um, without a felling license, and I suggest that's quite a common scenario, um, there's potential for prosecution. You're you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And interestingly, John, what's even more perhaps a penalty than a criminal record and a fine is a restocking notice. And now correct me if I'm wrong, but the restocking notice is not let's plant another 20 poplars. It's to replant the equivalent canopy cover or, or, or density of woodland cover in the area. So in effect, you sanitise that site from development with new planting. Yeah, I think, I think we'll, <laughs> we could easily get sidetracked in, into what, the, you know, <clears throat> what does the Forestry Commission do in, in, in these circumstances? And I think it, I, I'm, I cannot answer definitively on, on what they do in 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 those circumstances i i i really i really can't i don't know the full story as to how they i mean there are are obviously limited resources and i imagine that they are focused to some degree on their you know their bog standard forestry management hey that's for another i've digressed because it's fascinating i have got experience of my own case not not on something that I was directly involved in at the time where a restocking notice was served on a site which in effect sanitised it from development, even though it was in the local plan for residential development. But that is something I should just give a teaser to and never expand upon. John, over to you. You're being a very good chair here because you're trying to keep to the point and I'm rambling. (laughs) Look, I can ramble for a long time, but... um... I go back to this solicitor's website because they are obviously, um, I assume, you know, they were in the courtroom. I wasn't in the courtroom. I, I'm not party to all the fine detail. I'm just looking at these, the interaction of these two acts as I <clears throat> understand it. And I, I feel this, this court case may have gone off uh, track a little bit because um, the solicitor's website, um, you know, makes comment that the intention of Parliament had been clear and the TPO regime was intended to be subservient to the felling regime. Well, that's not the case. Uh, you know, there is an interaction between forestry and, and tree preservation orders and forestry. Uh, mainstream forestry undoubtedly wasn't meant to be restricted by the TPO regime. 
but that doesn't make it subservient. And certain section 15 um, of the Forestry Act says very clearly that it's not forestry that has the upper hand, it's the local authority with TPOs because they can object. Um, they can take all the felling licenses um, and say, we object to them on our protected trees and we will make a mind up on them. Um, and so this website says the only exception would be where a felling license was made and then referred for consultation. No, that is one of the two options that the Forestry Commission has. Um, so we have this complex case. We have a complex case where a felling, a felling license has been um, issued, but the local authority hasn't been informed that there was a felling license application. And the local authority clearly um, has the, the, all sorts of complicating factors behind the case uh, because there's been a lot of activity. And um, they obviously thought, well, if you haven't, if we haven't been, um, if we haven't given permission for uh, these works, then the people can be prosecuted. Sounds quite logical. But there is this next section of the Forestry Act, section 15.6, which says that where a felling license has been granted, in the case of where trees are protected by a TPO, <coughs> um, and the felling license postdates the TPO, the license shall, notwithstanding anything in that order, be sufficient authority for the felling of any trees to which the order relates. And it's pretty difficult to argue against that, but I will, because the potential implications for TPO, TPOs is huge. If I want to fell your poplar trees, um, or I was going to use an example of some nice big veteran oak trees around a field which someone wants to develop and which are protected by a TPO. I go to the Forestry Commission, put in a felling license application, don't tell the Forestry Commission that there's a TPO on them. They grant the felling license and I get my chainsaw out and start cutting the trees down. Local people call up the tree officer. The tree officer comes along and says, you can't do that. These trees are protected. And I say, oh, I've got a felling license. Well, we all know where that's going. Well, we don't know where it's going. But this person has said, I've got a felling license, and that trumps the TPO. So why would anybody bother to tell the Forestry Commission that there's a TPO? Well, there's a very good reason, because Section 15.6 of the Forestry Act has to be read with the rest of section 15 you can't pluck out one part of section 15 and wave it around having ignored sections 15 1 is a component of section 15 and there are regulations related to the forestry act and the regulations say the application applicants have to provide X, Y, and Z. And if the applicants haven't provided X, Y, and Z, or if they've deliberately or unconsciously failed to declare a TPO, you can't then come along and say, 
ah, this says the felling license trumps the TPO because they haven't followed the due process. So in other words, the applicant, your veteran tree owner client has been dishonest on the form. Yeah, they may be dishonest. They may be dishonest. They may be the, the Forestry Commission itself used the word fraudulent in one of their many uh, guidance notes, which appear uh, the, the word the word has disappeared now, but it was for a time fraudulent. Um, <clears throat> the the they could be fraudulent. They might have phoned up the local council and got the message that there wasn't a TPO. Or then, you know, if you're asking about a field and someone on the telephone in the local authority wants to know the address and you say, well, it's the field at the end of the road if you turn left here and all of that, you, you may get a verbal message. Um, yes, you might put in a land charge query, but all the same, the standard way of finding out if there's a TPO is you vote up the local authority and, um, <clears throat> you know, you ask so there are all sorts of reasons why the TPO might get mi missed in the felling license application. And if you go to the blue book, the old blue book, it anticipated that that might happen. And it suggested to tree officers that they might want to, um, you know, keep in touch with the Forestry Commission, watch what they were, what they were up to because TPOs might be missed clearly. That's quite a challenge, and I don't think it's quite the best way of going about it, but that's certainly, that's what's in the blue book. So I'm saying, um, I'm arguing against this clause, which says that the, the, the felling license trumps the TPO, because the implications for TPOs could be huge. And I raise the point, which is probably more, uh, uh, known to listeners and that is of the TPO that is um, not quite right um, in that it may not be confirmed. We know what a non-confirmed TPO is. It's worthless. We know if the council hasn't served, followed the correct procedure to raise the TPO. So for example, they may have confirmed it before the 28 days statutory um, consultation process is uh, is over i've had a few i've had a few that have been served confirmed almost on the same day that they they, they were served um, in those circumstances the tpo is not valid now we know that section 284 of the town and country planning act makes it very difficult for us to go to a council and force them to look at a TPO that has got errors in it and to tell them that they've got to do something about it. The, the local council can sit on a TPO and say the tree is protected. Um, and because we know this section 284 says that the validity of the TPO cannot be questioned in any legal proceedings whatsoever. But a felling license that has been generated by the Forestry Commission, where they haven't followed the due process, that is, they haven't followed section the process very clearly laid out in section 15. <clears throat> Whether the Forestry Commission know that, I mean, I, I hope that they don't follow this another process if they know that there is a TPO. I'm assuming it's just ignorance that maybe the applicant hasn't ticked the box saying there's a TPO. 
But the, if a felling license emerges out of that process and the Forestry Commission haven't followed due process, how can it be valid? The difficulty is, is that if the Forestry Commission are happy with a felling license and the applicant is happy with a felling license, they're not going to question it until the local authority get wind of it, which may be too late, depending on where the trees are and, and, and what's going on. Um, a local resident may not know about it at all, because this, this is far too complex for, for us, let alone for the members of the public. Um, then the Forestry Commission website says a felling license can't be altered after it has been issued. Um, I bet it can, if it got put in front of a judge. But anyway, the implications for TPOs, I mean, woodland TPOs in particular, but as you, you know, mentioned poplars, I mentioned oak trees, uh, anything out with of, you know, a garden, um, a churchyard, and, you know, requires a felling license. And someone, if, if this is the law, could come along and get a felling license and then wave, walk down the street and say, you can't prosecute me, local authority. Um, so I don't, I don't honestly believe it will stand up to scrutiny, but there we are. Um, the Forestry Commission has got some explaining to do in the sense that, um, you know, their guidance has changed <clears throat> so frequently. Um, and, but the basic problem is that the Forestry Commission need to know whether the trees in a felling license are protected by a TPO or not. And I think there's room for improvement in that, um, whether it means that every felling license the Forestry Commission has got, got to consult the local authority. You mentioned in the podcast that local authorities used to get weekly or monthly lists, whatever, whatever they are, they were regularly informed. And I can't see why you know, that can't happen. It's very easy to work out which local authority um, is. And if they send those lists through once a week or whatever, um, local authorities could look at them rather than looking on a website which possibly doesn't say which local authority is involved. Um, and, you know, it should be for the Forestry Commission to implement the law as set out for them to work out whether there is a tree preservation order in place or not, not allow applicants to um, tick the no box unless there is some very clear evidence. You know, maybe the applicant needs to write, have written a confirmation from the local authority that there is no tree preservation order on these trees. Maybe that's another way makes makes it a bit easier for the um, Forestry Commission. But to allow someone, whether it's the highways agency or anybody else, to tick the no box and get a felling license, which then circumvents the tree preservation order system, seems wrong. The Forestry Commission tr tried to get around this by putting a note on their felling licenses for several years. If you have not declared the existence of a tree preservation order or conservation area when making the felling application, any felling license subsequently issued will not cover the felling of trees to, to which a tree preservation order applies or which are in a conservation area. And that's disappeared 
from the felling license I've got here from earlier this year. But just as a slight, uh, it, you know, it's a very minor issue, but the issue of conservation areas actually is different from tree preservation orders. So the Forestry Commission lump in conservation areas with tree preservation orders and felling license. So please tell us if there's a conservation area. There's no, there's no law to say they need to do that. Um, <clears throat> there's no law that says that if they've got a felling license, that it allows you to cut trees down in a conservation area. Of course, most conservation areas are of an urban architectural nature. Um, so I wonder how many felling licenses are required in conservation areas. But all the same, um, whilst the Forestry Commission put that on the application form, um, the applicant doesn't have to declare a conservation. It's, it's convenient for them because the Forestry Commission will then um, uh, notify the local authority. But um, <clears throat> it doesn't, uh, yeah, as I say, the conservation area is not mentioned in the legislation with regards to felling licenses. John, that's been so fascinating going through that in detail. I wonder if you could just encapsulate your thoughts on this. So the Forestry Act 1967 is born of another age when the Forestry Commission was given every copy of every TPO, um, things were done in writing, um, and we are now obviously quite some way down uh, uh, along uh, many years later. And the Forestry Commission have far fewer staff than they used to have. And what appears to be um, a necessity for the Forestry Commission to find out, in, in, this is obviously in England, to find out if there is a tree preservation order uh, has led them to become reliant on applicants stating whether there's a T TPO or not. And that doesn't seem to be um, a sure way of identifying whether there's a tree preservation order or not for the Forestry Commission to consider a felling license. I think something needs to change. It needs to improve. How that is done requires some conversation between um, two ministries um, or just within the Forestry Commission as to whether they can improve practices efficiently. Clearly some local authorities find it much easier to identify whether there's a TPO or not. This case just highlights the complexities of the situation. I don't think um, this judgment will lead to other judgments of a similar nature, but there is a risk because I wasn't in the court. I don't know what was said either to the judge or by the judge, but it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound right. Um, and obviously Julian said there are all sorts of implications because you know this is the law and all these cases have gone in the past. Well, I'll be good luck to him. That's all I can say is I don't think um, it holds any water and, um, We'll see where it gets to. But uh, it, as I say, I think that the main thing is that the, there needs to be some interaction with the Forestry Commission to improve their procedures to make sure that felling licenses aren't issued, which don't uh, 
follow due process. John, thank you so much. It's been great to hear another point of view. So if anybody's listening to this from the Forestry Commission or has a different point of view, do get in touch. Noel at treeladytalks.co.uk And I know that everybody in the ARB community at least is looking forward to the updated Law of Trees, Forests and Hedges by Dr Charles Miners, Stephanie Hall and Elizabeth Nichols, which is out imminently. Might be a bit of bedtime reading, you never know. Our next episode is a celebration of a collaboration with the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Silver Foundation, where a diverse group of participants created beautiful objects from wood. That's next on Tree Lady Talks. <laughs>